The Living Water Inclusive Catholic Community is blended from two smaller faith communities that both originated in Maryland. We believe that we dwell in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without her, we are nothing. They began to celebrate the Eucharist together 10 years ago, alternating between a Unitarian church in Annapolis and a friend's meeting house in Baltimore. A community where we find companions and courage for the struggles of life, where we grow in our understanding of our faith through worship and prayer, song and dance, nurture and service. Their faith community is marked by a spirit of radical inclusivity. Aware that many Catholics have given up the practice of their faith for personal and often hurtful reasons, they make it their special mission to create an experience of the Eucharist that is safe and welcoming. We are called to be instruments of God's peace. We believe in living, loving, laughing, and enjoying the good of the earth. The Mass is prayed in inclusive language. All are welcome to participate in every aspect of the liturgy. Everyone is invited to receive communion. Amen. And they support the ordination of women to the Roman Catholic priesthood. The pastors are women priests. I've been excommunicated in Boston. <laughs> I've been excommunicated in New York. I've been excommunicated in Philadelphia. I've been excommunicated in Catonsville. Welcome to This is Catholic. My name is Emily Yanazelli, and today I'm talking to the Living Water Inclusive Catholic Community. I should be clear up front that Living Water is not recognized by the Vatican. Several popes have spoken very clearly on the issue of women's ordination, and the answer has always been no. That doesn't phase the members of this community, though. And it also doesn't stop them from teaching us something about what it means to be Catholic. Plus, even though it's certainly unconventional in some ways, it's just like any other Catholic parish or community in many ways, too. They have priests and parishioners, prayers and hymns, coffee and donuts after Mass on Sunday. The one reaction I've had from a couple of people over the years, in fact, Catholic people, sometimes it can seem too traditional. They come to St. John's and they see pews and they see a Mass and they see a priest and they're kind of horrified that it's so square, that it's so <laughs> traditional. That's Gloria. Gloria Carpinetto from Catonsville. Gloria is a priest and one of the founders of the community. And when I asked the members how they came to join the community, many of them pointed to Gloria. Gloria came because I knew Gloria. I was too a friend of Gloria. Gloria had done a day of retreat at the church that I worked at. That's Denise O'Connor. Denise O'Connor from Ellicott City. Professor Jensen and I joined the Living Water community at Denise's house for Mass on Sunday. You know, I guess sometimes the church the churches that we use on the second and fourth are not available. While home masses are somewhat unusual, 
It's not uncommon for the members of the Living Water community to meet in someone's home on Sunday for Mass. And for many of them, it's one of their favorite parts about this community. Denise's house is sunny and welcoming. It's in a quiet neighborhood, and driving in, there are signs that say, traffic calming ahead. It's a very serene place, which was especially noticeable after the lively preparations gave way to the mass itself. At first, though, it felt kind of like we were getting ready for a family party. Everyone brought a dish of food to share, and everyone pitched in to get ready for mass. It was an exciting day, too, because it was the community's first time using their new liturgy books. Yeah, we're baptizing our books this weekend that we haven't used before. And what's contained in the books is one of the most striking parts of the experience of Mass. All the words are different, so it's kind of like you're hearing Mass for the first time. Our Father, Mother in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Some of it can be a little weird at first. Like in the Our Father, the first line is changed to Our Father, Mother. And instead of kingdom, they say kingdom. And even though it got me thinking, I don't think the point of the changes is so much to make you think as it is to break down barriers for people who have felt excluded by the language of the liturgy. Forever and ever. Amen. When we first started... We took the Roman sacramentary. We went through it page by page to come up with our Gloria liturgies. and the other founder, Andrea Johnson, rewrote the liturgy in order to make it as inclusive as possible. And when there was a, a sexist or an exclusive piece in there, we rewrote it. Here's another example. Alleluia. Together with Francis, our Pope, with all our bishops, both men and women, and with all whose lives bring hope to this world. In your goodness, remember all who seek you with a sincere heart in faith traditions that call you by many names. Depending on how frequently you attend Mass and how carefully you attend to the liturgy, those words may seem anywhere between wildly deviant to more or less the same. And that's kind of on purpose. Even though they overwrote many parts of the traditional liturgy with more inclusive versions, Gloria and Andrea intended that the Mass should be recognizably Catholic. But, but, a Catholic person should be able to come to our church and know that they're in a Catholic church. I welcome everyone, our opening song. And that's true. I definitely knew that I was at a Catholic Mass. Jesus Christ is risen today. Jesus Christ is risen Although there was a lot more participation than I'm used to at Mass. For example, there was a different reader for each of the readings, including the gospel, which Denise read, not Gloria. And after the custom written intercessions were read, everybody chimed in with their own personal intentions. For whom else and for what else shall we pray? At the sign of peace, everyone hugged or shook hands with every other person. Let us offer the peace of Christ to one another. Luckily, there were only 10 of us because this took a long time. However, it really reinforced the feeling of community before we shared communion together. 
Also, it just felt like I got more speaking lines than I usually do, which was especially noticeable around the consecration when everybody joined in saying things that you usually only hear the priests say, things that you've only ever heard a man say. He took bread and praised you, God of all creation. He blessed and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. At communion time, instead of lining up, so that Gloria could hand out communion individually to each one of us, we passed communion in a circle and gave it to each other. All of these, the community would say, are examples of inclusivity in action. This community may have women priests, but its defining characteristic is its uncompromising commitment to inclusivity. When you talk about inclusivity, it's also accessibility. That's Pat Elliott. Pat Elliott from Baltimore. And Pat points out that inclusivity is about more than inclusiveness. It also means accessibility and opportunities for participation. Accessibility to whatever spiritual practices are alive in the world, because all of them have value and all of them lead to peace and harmony, where living water nurtures in each of us what the Spirit is telling us and tells each of us that that's just fine. That's the goal, not which church is better and which rules are right. You know, inclusivity means a lot. Here's Gloria again. Our folks are writing the intercessions and they're baking the bread and they're buying the wine and they're standing at the altar. So, and then the language is inclusive and people jumping in and, and having something significant to say about a homily. Gloria just mentioned people jumping in to have something significant to say after the homily. And to me, this was one of the most interesting examples of inclusivity at work. It's our custom to <clears throat> offer people the opportunity to respond or have anything to share about the readings, my reflections at this time. You see, after Gloria gave her homily, she stopped and invited people to share their thoughts on the readings and on her homily in a casual dialogue. Yeah, it makes that first reading sound like a pretty utopian society. Mm -hmm. The discussion went back and forth between the first reading, which was about the apostles in the early church, and Gloria's homily in which she took us back to when the temple curtain was ripped at the moment that Jesus died. I'm going to play a little bit of Gloria's homily for you, because after Mass, it was easy to pick up on the conversation that had already started and connect it to the history and identity of this community that is alive and Catholic right now. You know, we're going to be celebrating Easter for the next 50 days or so, but I want to take us back today for just a minute to Good Friday. At the moment of Jesus' death, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. We don't often talk about the temple curtain, but as you may or may not know, that curtain divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. 
And it wasn't anything like, I, I was hoping you'd have drapes here because I was going to compare them. And it wasn't even anything like your blinds. It wasn't like the temple blinds, which couldn't have been torn from top to bottom. But anyway, this was the temple curtain. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the curtain was the thickness of a man's hand. It was about 70 feet high and 30 feet long, so pretty big. In other Jewish writings, we hear it took 80 young women a year working full-time to make two of these curtains. It's also said that teams of horses pulling on both ends of the curtain couldn't pull the curtain apart. So it was a pretty mammoth structure. And if the curtain ever got stained, this is my favorite part, it took 300 specially designated priests in the temple to clean it. But the point is, it was a huge, huge thing. I mean, I always thought that it was, you know, rip a big velvet curtain. The curtain was immense, and it could never have been torn by human hands. And it certainly couldn't have been torn from top to bottom. So no, at the moment when Jesus died, Matthew apparently used the tearing of the temple curtain as a symbol of God's inviting humanity into the life of Christ, into the Holy of Holies. Jesus' death literally broke down the immense barrier between divinity and humanity, and we were able to walk into the Holy of Holies. We were invited to be the Holy of Holies. And it's the enormous implications of this invitation to live in God, to live in the Holy of Holies, and to believe that we actually belong there. That is, I think, running, it's a thread that runs through our readings today. In the Acts of the Apostles, we see the young Christian community as it evolves. We're told that they're caring for each other as Jesus would have cared for them. They have become the Holy of Holies. They have moved behind the temple curtain, and they are answering the invitation to live in God. And in John's Gospel, Jesus shows us that it doesn't matter how or when you follow him, only that you do. You can be the disciples on Easter Sunday evening and you're receiving Jesus with great joy. Or you can be Thomas a week later, wanting a little more proof before you make a commitment. Both cases are okay by Jesus. All that matters is all of us are called to live lives of peace, to really accept that we are empowered to bring God into the world through our love and forgiveness of others and of ourselves. So I think the message today is that the temple curtain wasn't torn apart for nothing. It was torn apart, symbolically, so that we could walk into the Holy of Holies, directly into the presence of a loving God, and learn, each of us, how to bring that presence into the world. And no one size fits all. Each of us is on a journey, and what we do and how we do it will change with our stage in life. Just as Jesus accepted the faith and the commitment of his disciples, including the iffy ones, like James and John and Peter and Thomas, so too does he accept what we can do, when we can do it, whatever we can do to bring God out of behind that curtain and into the world. So pick something, see something, say something, pick something, do something, large or small. Bring the love of God out of the sanctuary and into the world. That's why the curtain was torn. 
That's why we're here praying at this liturgy today. In the same way that hearing the liturgy in different words was like hearing the Mass for the first time, seeing a woman as a priest was like seeing a priest for the first time. And it made me wonder what it means to be a priest. So I asked Gloria. What does it mean to be a priest? Like, what, what is a priest? That's a good question. Because I grew up the same as everyone else, thinking that this is what a priest is. You know, there is this... And I don't mean to, to mock it at all, but there was this kind of teaching of there was a special call, you know. Well, now I think that there is a call. There is a call to lead people in prayer. And there is a call to um, be behind the curtain and bring what's behind the curtain out. And I guess there's a call to be trained and skilled in that way to do that. So I think of, I guess, to me, a priest is a designated pastoral leader affirmed by a community as their leader who leads prayer, worship, ministry, but mostly walks with people in their journey to God. We're very, very um, cautious of women who want to hang another shingle out. You know, so now I'm a this, this, and I'm a priest. Um, and if, if there's not a call from a community, I don't know that you can be a priest. Gloria was working in a parish in Baltimore before she became ordained. And it was in that community that she found her call to ordination. I had done a, um, a kind of do-it-yourself-at-home <laughs> Ignatian retreat one Advent. And um, after that retreat was over, um, several women said that they wanted to continue the prayer and the kind of spiritual direction that was happening during our individual sessions. So we set a group up that was basically group spiritual direction and just off the top of our head kind of called ourselves the spiritual companions like Ignatius called his people. But when I felt a call or, or thought that I was called, whatever that means, to be ordained, that was the group I went to. That was the first group that I went to and said, this is what I'm thinking. Um, here's where my heart is. What do you think? And my recollection is that they must have prayed over it because they, they wound up writing me a letter. And now I'm sorry I didn't bring the chalice that they gave me as a gift for my ordination. But um, anyway, it was the companions that actually called me forth into ordination. So I thought when you said, what, you know, what does it mean to be a priest? I think a huge component of it is that you have to be called forth by a community. You know, I think you're only a priest because there's a community that you are serving and part of. Pat Elliott, who we heard earlier talking about inclusivity as accessibility, was also a part of and serving the parish where Gloria worked as a pastoral associate. While she was not called to ordination, she felt a call to something more. I have a, a very vivid memory one day, for whatever reason, I was beside the altar waiting to be called for Eucharistic ministry. Pat worked as a Eucharistic minister 
delivering communion to people who are homebound. And the priest goes like this to me, come up here. So I come up, and he was not yet finished the words of institution, so I don't know what he was just trying to get quickly to give me the bread because we had this huge crowd. And as I was beside him, and he was reading the words of institution, and I'm looking out, and I'm thinking, he's just reading this. I'm not feeling any awe. I'm not feeling that he even cares about this. And then I said to myself, well, what is keeping any of us from being at this table? It's there's like there is a wall, all of them and him. At that moment, I thought, this, this is nuts. It's our table. Pat was already involved with Living Water at this point. She was what she called on the fence between Living Water and the other parish. She was holding on to the other parish because of this ministry delivering communion. But this experience where she actually got to go behind the curtain kind of pushed her over the edge. And she left the other parish completely. So that was a turning point for me. And of course, thankfully, this happened. Or I would not speak of the rest of the room, but I wouldn't know where I would be worshiping if I would be worshiping now because of the barriers in most traditional faith communities. So this has really removed all barriers of any type and allowed us all, I think, to express our faith in an authentic way that we, as women, certainly were not allowed before. Some of us were parishioners at Northeast Baltimore. That's Joan Sipes. Joan Sipes from Essex. Joan also belonged to the other parish, but felt disillusioned about many aspects of the traditional church. And so she joined the Living Water community. At that time, which was, again, 10 years ago, even more, I was disenchanted with with the traditional church, Uh, not only because of scandals, but because of things that I just no longer believed in anymore, like uh, refusing Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Or not, or not inviting in to the Eucharistic celebration. Everyone there. Another member, Charlotte Ernst. Charlotte Ernst from Carney, who came over from the other parish in Baltimore, remembers joining all of the ministries that Gloria started. Was involved in several, <laughs> pretty much every ministry that she started there because it was outreach. And yet, she still felt excluded from some of the activities at the church things that I wanted to get involved with. It felt like I didn't have a voice or wasn't allowed to have a voice, let me put it that way. Not everyone came from the other parish in Baltimore. Denise O'Connor, whose house we were meeting at, joined about five years after Living Water was founded. But she came due to similar frustrations. I used to say to my husband, I don't want to leave. I want to stay and I want to fight because... It's wrong what's happening. It's unjust. It's, you know, women can't be priests and they are, that they denigrate gays and lesbians. And um, the, the thing that really finally got to me after the sexual abuse, I was still working for the Catholic Church, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back when the Vatican decided that they were going to do a study of American sisters. And that was so punitive. And I I knew so many sisters 
My husband had three aunts who were nuns who were just fabulous, progressive women. I loved the nuns I had in high school and college. They were good. I was appalled, and that's when I decided I, I have to find a different community. How did you, what, like, what did you do to find other? Well, Gloria had done a day of retreat at the church that I worked at, and I remembered her, and I remembered reading an article. Denise read an article about Gloria's ordination and remembered her from the retreat. So she just looked up her phone number and called her out of the blue one day. I just called her one day, you know, looked up her phone number and called her and said, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling here, and she invited me to come, and that was it. I'm, I'm very happy that I found living water. Things didn't necessarily improve once the community got started. In fact, in the early days, they had to overcome a lot of challenges. Yes, I actually can recall a day when we were at St. Anthony's. Here's Pat Elliott again. In the parking lot in the back, and one of the parish priests pulled over and looked at us and said, you're hanging around with the wrong people. And he met yes. Gloria. <laughs> anyway, they'd been friends with me when I was the pastoral associate there. And then... I was ordained with a priest named Andrea Johnson. Andrea Johnson is the other founder of the Living Water community who helped rewrite the liturgies and is now a bishop. Who had a leadership role in a parish in Annapolis. And some of the people that were experiencing what I think our people were experiencing. So when Andrea and I were ordained, those folks were courageous enough to come with us and form this community. Some of the members don't think they're as brave as Gloria gives them credit for, while others don't see how it would be possible to stay in the church. I'm not sure I was quite as brave as you give, give us credit for. But I, I've heard some people say that they stayed within the church to change the church from within. I just didn't see how that oh, was going to work. I agree, too. I didn't see it happening. Not the way it's set up. So they were really careful when they started the Living Water community. Well, we were very careful, I'll say Andrea and I, because we kind of did the, the weightlifting of getting the, the organization started. We were very careful of incorporating Living Water Holistic Ministries as a 501c3 organization, not as a church. So we are not incorporated as a church. We, therefore consider ourselves still a part of the Catholic Church. We're an alternative faith community, but the living water inclusive Catholic community is um, taken, taken care of by the funds that come to Living Water Holistic Ministries, but that was a very conscious decision. We did not want to say we're setting up another church we didn't want to be within the church and work in that conventional way. But um, we wanted to be able to say, should any bishop or archbishop or anyone ask us, no, we very much consider ourselves part of the Roman Catholic Church. This is how we think a Roman Catholic Church could look. Um, but we have not split off from the church, and we're not, a step, we're not even incorporated as a church. So... Like, how would you explain to someone, or like someone listening to this, who 
who thinks, well, then they're not Catholic. You may have to break it down into whether you're thinking organizationally or you're thinking morally, spiritually. If you're thinking organizationally, you know, I mean, the church is an organization with a CEO who can fire or cut off whomever he chooses. Any, any CEO can do that. So legally, there are laws. Those laws have been broken. And so from the official organizational connection to the church that you may have had, that may be severed. That's one way of looking at it. And so a person could say, you were excommunicated. Have, have any of you, have you been excommunicated? Yeah, there's a little trick, a little, um, <laughs> a little loophole that the church uses. I can't remember when was the last time someone actually received papers mm-hmm. that said they were excommunicated. <laughs> when we first started, the first couple of women who were ordained got actual decrees, you know, suitable for framing. <laughs> but as time went on, they told us that we had incurred a latte sentencia um, excommunication, which means basically you've excommunicated yourself. So we're not going to spend a stamp and tell you that you're excommunicated. You should just know you've done it yourself. So it, it's the same, I, I hate to put it this way, but it's the same excommunication that if you've had an abortion, um, if you're a pedophile, um, if you're ordained a woman priest, <laughs> or I think if you smack a bishop. So that's the legal answer, which can seem kind of silly in the context of God. Why are we in these communities? Anybody that joins a community of faith or spirituality, whatever it is, unusual religions that I don't even know about, it's about our relationship with God and how we manifest that relationship with God through our life and through our service to other people. Ultimately, Denise says, no one can excommunicate her from her relationship to God. can't excommunicate me from my relationship with God. Gloria sees the possibility for another type of answer. When a person asks a question, as you just asked me a question, well, what do you say about excommunication? The first thing we try to do is give an answer. You know, you ask me a question, I give you an answer. But that's kind of a binary model. Mm-hmm. It, it implies that there is an answer. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> real answer to the question, and maybe people other than you asking it, don't want to hear it. The real answer to the question, I think, is why don't you think about that and talk with God about that and see where you wind up on that and where you and God, where you feel like you and God have come to something. That's your answer. I I can't give you an answer to that other than a legal one. And I believe that that's what everybody in our community has done. They've thought about it. They've probably got a a handy-dandy little answer if someone asks them a question, are you excommunicated or not? (laughs) But ultimately, it's how they have prayed and talked with their understanding of God about it. And whatever answer they've come up with is their answer. 
And the church, I'm afraid, is in the business of binary. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in or you're out. You're right or you're wrong. You're within the canon or you're outside of it. And so when you open up to, well, let's think about this, that's why you get excommunicated. Mm-hmm. You know? So the very act of just considering a, an experience of a, with a community like this has already deepened your spirituality just by the consideration of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can go crazy trying to get at an answer, too, because I remember, again, when we first started, there were bishops who were literally sending people spies, Mm-hmm. Sending people to ordinations with cameras, posing as photographers. The guy that he sent to take the photographs, he had him in his office the Friday before the ordination. And he gave him a dispensation to be at the ordination <laughs> so he so would he get excommunicated. <laughs> well, he, he would need that. Kind of like being inoculated. <laughs> against all this... On the continuum, it would be from there to Archbishop so-and-so says you are if you attended. Well, Archbishop so-and-so says, well, you're not unless you're ordained. Well, your head can explode again with this binary business, and you settle into, look, am I there for the love of God? And if I am, you all, you know, go at it. You can fight over whether I'm excommunicated or not, but it doesn't matter to me. I was going to ask whether, like, you think, like, the call to be inclusive includes being inclusive towards those kinds of people who are exclusive. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. We're called to be inclusive, even with those who we don't agree with. It's hard. It's very hard. (laughs) It's very hard. But the Living Water community does it very well. And if you're interested in learning more about them, please check out their website, which is linked on our website, www.thisiscatholic.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Catholic. Thank you so much to the entire Living Water Inclusive Catholic community for all of your support and participation. We only talked to a few members of this amazing community and we're gracious for all of the silent support as well as active participation. Thank you as always to Professor Jensen. Joe Jensen from Baltimore. For your support and presence this week, even though I had to exclude all of your amazing comments. Before there were priests, and the word presbyter means elder, the criteria for being a priest was to have a house big enough to house the community. The criteria for celebrating the Eucharist was to be the owner of that house. If it happened to be a female, presumably the females presided at the breaking of the bread, the, the, the meal. I also want to give a special thanks to the amazingly talented artist, Lee Rosevier, who wrote both songs you heard in the background today, Love Wins and Alleluia. You can find a link to his website on our webpage as well. We'll see you next time on This is Catholic. Well, let's hope that we never look at curtains the same way again. (laughs)